The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Today we're stumbling into uh, what I want to call something of a secret. It's a secret. If you're not in on this secret, God will stay more irrelevant to your life. So you might, be, you might believe in a God, but he's not going to own you or win you if you're not in on this secret. If you're not in on this secret, you'll see yourself as more in control. If you're not in on this secret, your problems will seem huge. But if you get in on this secret, if you see the secret, everything changes your problems get smaller, your view of your control gets smaller, your peace goes up, you're more humble, and I think you're probably actually more free than ever before. And so you're wondering, well, what's the secret? The secret is seeing God's holiness. Seeing God's holiness. So we're gonna, today we get to hear a, a personal uh, testimony of a prophet, right? It's a personal story that, that happened to him. He was a prophet of Israel. What does that mean? He spoke for God. That's, that's a high title. He spoke for God. Yet I think he would tell you, and I think he is telling us in this passage, he didn't really know what it meant to know God and follow him until this happened, this event that happened in his life where he saw the holiness of God. Now, I don't, I don't think we should be um, hoping for the same kind of vision when we go home tonight. Maybe. I mean, that would be amazing. But I don't think we should be hoping for the same kind of, of vision. But we remember here how the Word of God is supposed to work. How's the Word of God supposed to work? Why did, why did Isaiah include this experience that he had? Do you think it was so that everybody would go, wow, Isaiah is really amazing? Is that why he shared the vision? Or do you think he gives it to us so that by faith as we believe the testimony he's giving, even though we don't have the same vision in the same way, the Holy Spirit shows us the truth of this account. And though we don't have the experience in the same way, we have the experience of our hearts and minds being aware of God's holiness. And I think some of you would probably even know what I'm talking about. Was there a time in your life where maybe you would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, um, life happens, but then there was a season or a time or a moment where all of a sudden it got real? It got real. God got real. Um, your pursuit of him changed. I bet it had something to do with you seeing what it means that he's holy. And I, I hope that's what's gonna happen for us this morning, all of us in some way, as we encounter this scripture. So Isaiah wants to let us in on the secret, uh, and, and I think this is what the passage is about. What happens to you when you see that God's holy? 
What happens to you when you taste it, that God is holy? What happens, what happens to you when it becomes uh, more than just a concept in your mind, but it becomes a, uh, it's, it's haunted you, it's contacted you, it's changed your, your view, your affections? What happens when you see that God is holy? So that's what I mean about the secret. The secret is not the message that God's holy. It's all through the Bible. Hey, guess what? God's holy. If you've been a Christian for 20 seconds, I hope you've heard that one. So it's not a secret in its proclamation. The secret is the experience. The secret is the experience when God's spirit shows you who he is. And so the question is, what happens when you see it? What happens when you see it? So that's what we're gonna do this morning. Gonna walk through the secret, the concept. What does it mean that God is holy? And then I wanna see four things that happen to us when we see it. So the secret in four things. Let's begin. Isaiah 6.1, the prophet writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. Why do you think he mentions the king and the death? We're not totally sure. He doesn't really tell us. But if you study your scriptures, you'll know that Uzziah had a fairly long, fairly prosperous Rain. Um, you'll see that is the end of his life ended in somewhat of a failure. He wanted to play priest. He denied God's holiness. He died with leprosy. That's part of it. So there's an echo of, hey, if you don't respect God's holiness. Another reason I think would be, uh, well, just. I think we can feel it a little bit. How have you felt about politics in the last year and a half? Up, upheaval. Whatever side of the aisle you lean towards, upheaval, fear, unrest, controversy. And of course, you realize that we had an administration change with no wars, praise the Lord. No real violence to speak of, praise the Lord. It's a nice country to live in. You know it doesn't really work that way all the time throughout the rest of the world or throughout history. When there's a king change, the stability, uh, the consistency, everything is up for grabs. Everything is up for grabs. So what's, what's intense on your heart when you look at the politic of this world, the kings of this world, fear, um, concern, um, is there really any king we can trust? Are we lost? In the year that King Uzziah died, and then Isaiah says, in the year of that fear, in the year of that failure, I saw a different king. I saw a different king. Like lightning, Uzziah and everybody else is forgotten. Like lightning, it's forgotten, and what does Isaiah see? Just try to see it with him. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And where is he sitting? He's on a throne, high and lifted up. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that there's a throne and it's just higher than you can, um, higher than you could reach? You know it. You remind yourself how to read the Bible here. Does God have uh, thighs 
and he actually sits on a chair? And is it in a building? And is the seat way up high? And his head's kind of like bumping the ceiling. Are you supposed to take it like that? Or are these uh, symbolic realities? Excuse me. What do you think? I'm going to go with symbolic realities. What does it mean that he's high and lifted up on a throne? It means he is absolutely and totally, majestically the king of everything. He is king. He reigns. And he's beautiful in his power. And he's majestic in his authority. He's high and lifted up. There's no one like him. He's totally unique. He's in control. No one threatens his reign. No one can um, compromise who he is. He, there he is in himself, perfect and wonderful, high and lifted up. Then Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the temple. So back in the old days, it's too bad we don't do it nowadays. Wouldn't you love to see the leaders of the world compete with how long their coats could be? This would be, uh, this would be good entertainment. Uh, how long can you make your coat? Well, in the ancient days, they did a little of that. There's even some stories where if you conquered one king, you'd take some of his robe, tie it onto yours. So again, this vision, does God, does God button up his uh, cape every morning? I don't think so. But what is Isaiah's vision saying to the ancient world? That the whole temple, a large room, is just stuffed and packed, packed with this coat, this train of his robe. What, what is he saying to the ancient world? There's nobody more majestic, more dominating, more in charge, more powerful, more wonderful than this king. He's the Lord of hosts, the ultimate king. And then look at his attendants. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Uh, Anybody in here an expert on seraphim? Because, oh, we got one, okay. Six-winged angels, that's good. Unfortunately, that's almost all we know. But uh, the Hebrew can mean fiery ones. Fiery ones. So, so what does that do for your imagination? Fiery ones. If you saw the fiery ones there, what do you think your response would be? Uh, you wouldn't be yawning, probably. I wonder why Isaiah calls them fiery ones. Maybe that's just the word for it. Some say maybe their wings look like fire. Uh, Another commentator says, well, maybe that's because they're about to burn Isaiah's face off, and that's how he remembers them. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. But they're fiery ones. Uh, They're awesome. You know, you go to Barnes & Noble, you look at angels, you read the Bible, you look at angels, you get two really different stories. What do you get at Barnes & Noble's? You know, you're... If you look at those books, you get spirit guides, you get little naked babies with dove wings, and angels are cute. You can get a little precious moments figure and put it on your shelf, and that's an angel. You read the Bible about angels, and you get one angel killing 180,000 of the Assyrian army. One angel. You get one angel ripping through Egypt, and all the firstborn are gone. One angel. When people see angels in Scripture, we can't handle it. We fall over. And there's two of them here, and they have, well, first they have a a posture. So they have six wings, 
What are they doing with their wings? Well, it's with one pair, they cover their eyes. Why? These sinless, right, they've never sinned, fiery ones before whom we would tremble, they cannot bear to look at the holiness of God. It's too much. They can't handle him. Too bright, too powerful, too majestic, too pure. They cover their eyes. With other two wings, they cover their feet. Scholars give different reasons for this, but they seem to agree on this idea. It has to do with holiness, or I'm sorry, humility. It has to do with humility. So when Moses comes before the burning bush, hey, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. There's something with the feet that just, you cover that. You say, you're... You're the creator, I'm the creature, and I cannot attain uh, to anything close to who you are. And this is where we get to this idea that these fiery ones are shouting out. What are they saying in verse 3? One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew and in ancient languages, if you want to emphasize something, um, you repeat the word. So if Jesus really wants to land something on his audience, what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. Uh, in, in ancient Hebrew, if um, there's a story of a battle and some people fall into tar pits, and, um, and the author says they were tarry tar pits, just the, the same word right in a row. And what does that mean to the Hebrew writer? These are super tarry pits. Wow, tarry pits. So sticky. Tarry, tarry pits. Okay? Almost never do you get a threefold repetition. Almost never do you get a threefold repetition. Of no other attribute of God do you get a threefold repetition. And these fiery ones who are right there in his presence, they can't bear to look. And what's their message to one another? He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. And what do you think their attitude in that is? You think they got a memo from the heavenly angel office, the bulletin on it, hey, today's holy day, we just want you to keep saying this? Just, you know I'm going to stop? No, just keep saying it. Okay. Holy, holy, holy. Just keep going? Yeah, holy, holy. Do you think that's their attitude? That's our attitude in church sometimes. It's our attitude in church sometimes. Yeah, he's holy. What's on TV? These fiery ones are proclaiming it because they're overwhelmed. Right? They're overwhelmed. He's so holy. He's so unique. He's so set apart. I think from this passage, God's holiness means he's majestically unique in his power, beauty, and purity. He's majestically unique in his power, beauty, and purity. Pastors, scholars, commentators will give you different angles on holiness Um, you get some 
some connection of, of something that's beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. A, a majestic mountain. You, you can't even climb to the top, but it's so beautiful and I just want to get there. I might die doing it. Terrifying, majestic beauty. Majestically unique in power, in beauty, and in purity. So number one is total uniqueness. A lot of times when well, we're teaching our kids about holiness, we say it means to be set apart. And that's a, that's a good use of this word. It just means a cut above, top shelf, nothing else is like him. There's God over here, everything else over there. He's different. He's different in his strength, his eternality, his love, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy. Everything that he is is unique to him, and it's perfect, and it's splendid. It's the ultimate. He's the ultimate holy king. There's no king like him. It speaks to his authority. If you don't get anything else from this passage other than this, God, the holy God, who, who's king over this mess? God is king. He has authority. We're responsible to him. The fiery ones also say the earth is full of his glory. That's interesting, isn't it? He's holy, right? You heard that? He's holy, and what's the earth full of? His glory. So one question I want to toy with is, what's the, what's the uh, relationship between God's holiness and God's glory? It's, is that interesting? Um, we've seen from Psalm 19, right? Um, the heavens declare, what do they declare? The glory of God. So when you look out at the sunset, at a mountain range, at, at anything in creation that makes you go, wow, that's telling you that God is, wow, the one who made it even more so. And that's telling you, when you see his glory, that's telling you something even deeper, that he is holy, uniquely glorious, uniquely beautiful, nothing like him. You see his beauty and his terror, don't you, in creation? A thunderstorm, an earthquake, can't stand before it, or tornado, power. And yet, I actually met a tornado chaser while I was on vacation. And you know what he talked about when he talked about the tornado? It's beauty. It's beauty as it comes down in this perfect pattern and how he was thrilled by it. I don't know, does this tap into the human heart at all, where our greatest joys are found in the presence of something we both long for and are a little scared of? And God is, is just the ultimate of beauty and power and terror in his, um, well, in his uniqueness as creator. He's the first cause. He's the one who started it all. He's the one to whom we all owe total allegiance because of who he is, the holy one, the king who made it all. The earth is full of his glory. He's also, and I'd be, uh, be wrong if I didn't mention this, he's also terrifying in his moral purity, his purity. You read the Old Testament, and uh, there's a constant struggle between God and his people, and it's over this issue, holiness. God is saying, hey, I want to be close to you. 
I want to know you. I want you to be close to me and know me, but we have a really strong problem. And that is this. I'm holy, and you're not. You're not. Um, one commentator I was reading remarked, uh, and I don't know anything about this, so I'm just quoting from the commentator. But he, he talked about how uh, thinkers like Sigmund Freud, for instance, they propose that the reason humans invent things like religion and God is because we're so scared of creation. So we don't know how to handle earthquakes and famines and floods and diseases and all this. So we need to invent a God to help us make it through. And then the commentator remarked, boy, the biblical God sure messed that one up. Let me give you one example. So the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. And the storm comes. The waves are coming in over the boat. How do they feel? They're terrified. Then Jesus says to the storm, stop. Now how do the disciples feel? More terrified. More terrified. I can deal with storms. People who stop storms by talking, that's scary. It happens all the time in the scriptures. There's a demoniac in Luke 8, right? He breaks chains. Nobody can hold him down. He runs around naked. He's as scary as can be. He's full of a bunch of demons. When Jesus walks up to him, what does the, the demoniac do who breaks chains? He's afraid and he's on his face. Jesus says, get out. How, do, how does all the surrounding crowds think of Jesus at that point? They're more terrified of him and they say, could you please leave? We don't know what to do with you. We're scared of the holy. When, when, uh, there's another story in Luke where the, the Peter and this uh, are out fishing and they don't catch anything, and they come in after, uh, after the night's work. And then Jesus, the rabbi, says, hey, go out again, cast your nets. <laughs> now, how many of you would be uh, a little crusty if you'd spent your whole day working on something that you thought you were, you know how to do this, you're a professional, and the local pastor came in and said, uh, try it again, it'll work this time. After you've already come in, cleaned your nets, put it all away. Really? They go out again and they do it. They pull in so many fish that the boat begins to sink. And what does Peter say to Jesus? Leave me. I'm a sinner. You tell fish where to go? I can't handle you. I can't handle you. The Old Testament is full of the story. We can't handle a holy God because we're so unholy. And he's dangerous. So this is the secret. Are you, I mean, I did it, I don't know if you remember, but several years ago, I did, we did a whole series on the holiness of God. Um, you, you can, we just dipped our finger into, into an ocean here with this theme. But are you at least getting the idea what is God like? He's holy. He's different than everything else, and he's ultimately valuable. He's king. He's authority. He's beauty. He's terror, and he's moral purity. He's moral purity. He hates sin. That's one of those distant phrases, isn't it? Hates sin. 
Um, can I try to flesh that out here? So, one way to talk about sin is that it's a corruption of what was supposed to be. Right? Sin is never very ingenious in that it can't invent anything. It has to twist something that's already there. Okay? So, one problem when we talk about holiness, when we say set apart, uh, you got to put your theology hats on for this one. When we say set apart, we're already assuming a creation. Okay? Right? Set apart from? Well, how does God's holiness play into it before creation? You wouldn't use the word set apart because there's nothing else to be set apart from, right? How does this holiness come into play before creation? Sinclair Ferguson talks about um, God's holiness therein, especially as we know that God is triune in the New Testament. God's holiness being the Father's great delight and love for the beauty and perfection of his Son. And the Son's corresponding great delight and love for his Father and the person of the Holy Spirit who, who is that love between them. God is holy in his total delight in himself. I believe that's true. And so when we as human beings were made to be holy, what were we made to delight in? Him. And what happens with sin? We, we look at the one who's most beautiful, most amazing, most desirable, the king, and we say to him, you're not beautiful, you're not a good king, I don't love you, I don't delight in you. And that is the uncleanness, the unholiness. And if we believe this idea, if you'll take this idea that the Father loves the Son, the Son is devoted to the Father, the Spirit is the person of that love, if God, the triune God, loves himself, and that is his holiness, if you believe that, then how does this holy God feel about those who demean him? If you love something, you always hate its opposite. Isn't that true? If you love something, you hate its opposite. If the father sees love as the delighting in his son and in a, in a, in a sinful world says, we can't stand your son, and the father loves his son, how will he feel towards a sinful world's demeaning of his son? He'll hate it. God is morally pure. And they, you bring that into, into practical, actual life. Like lust, right? What, what does the Bible say about lust? It's not holy. Well, why? Why? Because there's something about holiness that is faithful to what is properly yours. So if you're married, a holy mind and a holy heart in marriage would be I'm all about my spouse when it comes to this category of living. I'm all about my spouse, even my mind and my heart. Because Ephesians 5, God's all, Jesus is all about his church. Holy love, no impurity. And yet, when we look at our hearts, like, uh, do I have a holy heart? Do I have a holy heart towards my wife? Here's the difference between God and me, at least one. <laughs> there are others. God's moral perfection. Do, do I hate lust? Do you hate lust? The answer for most of us probably is sort of. Right? Sort of. 
Because if you totally hated it every time, guess what? You would never lust. So even the fact that it creeps in on me and I, I smell it, I move towards it, I'm tempted by it, already it shows you where my hatred of lust is. God help me, hopefully I'm like 80% hate it, 20% love it. I don't know, you can't do it like that. But it, it creeps in, doesn't it? And, and you want it, and you think, oh, that would be good, and if I could just have a little more, then I could do that with any sin. And you see your unholiness, and then you see the difference with God. He always completely, totally, absolutely loves what is right and beautiful and true, which means he always completely and totally and absolutely hates what isn't. He's holy, which scares us to death. It scares us to death. Anyway, have you seen The Secret? Do you have a sense of God's holiness? Has it landed on you? Here's what happens if it does. Four things, we'll move more quickly. Number one, to see God's holiness is to be overwhelmed. It's to be overwhelmed, look at verse four. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Now you remind, the seraphs can't even look. You fall on your face. When you sense the holiness of God, you're so overwhelmed by him, everything else fades down a couple levels. We read together in prayer this morning, we prayed from Isaiah 40, and there Isaiah writes that the nations of the world, all of political upheaval, everything going on, the nations of the world, they're a drop in the bucket compared to our holy God. They don't move the scales on the importance factor when it comes to our holy God. Is that not amazing? When you see him, he gets so much greater and huger to you that everything else, yeah, it's important, but eh, demoted. Let me show you uh, one example of this. Are you familiar with the book of Job? Read that book? It's a really important book. It's a good book. It's a hard book. It's about how do we understand suffering, especially when good people suffer? What do we do with this? One of the hard parts of Job is that a majority of Job the book is Job getting bad advice from his friends. And so sometimes you read it and you're underlining it and you're like, oh, that's good. And then you remember, oh, wait, it's not good. Something's wrong. But the question is, right, how is Job to understand his massive suffering that he's gone through? And he does have a complaint before the Lord. Hey, I love you. I follow you. What's up? Why are you treating me like this? And then at the end of the book, God actually comes and visits Job. And Job is let in on the secret. Look at what Job says after he sees the holiness of God. Job 42, verse 3. Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye, what? Sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I didn't know what I was saying with all my criticisms of you and all my doubt of you. I didn't know what I was saying until I saw you and now I realize you're holy. Listen, I don't, I don't mean to demean the problem of evil or, or, how, difficulty, or how difficult suffering it is. It is and and um, questions are worth answering and it's, it's not a one size fits all, hey, they're suffering, well, here's the answer. But one answer is here. When you see God's holiness, 
When you see who he is, uh, the complaining drops a bit. When you see his holiness, the, uh, the judgments of him, and how dare you do this, oh God? Eh, no. When you see that, you're just like, I'll be quiet now. You're God, and you can do whatever you want. That's what the heart says when it sees holiness. You're overwhelmed. He is the biggest factor in life. Second thing that happens to you when you see the holiness of God, you're undone. You're undone. Look at verse five. I said, woe is me. Woe is me. Now, why does he say that? And isn't it interesting that he says that? Uh, We don't talk that way in modern English very often, I don't think. Woe is me. What does it mean? Well, let's remember, what was Isaiah's job? You remember that? He's a prophet. What's part of his job? He goes to an unbelieving, rebellious Israel, and he says, hey, we have a deal with God here. We have a covenant with him. You're breaking it. Woe is you. Woe means you're going to face the penalty of your rebellion and your sin. That's what woe means. Six times in chapter 5, Isaiah calls down woe on Israel. Six times. Let me show you some. Look at 520. Isaiah 520. Look what Isaiah writes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, deprive the innocent of his right. Woe to you. Woe to you when you say rebellion is good. Woe to you when you don't care about justice. Woe to you. And he's right in saying so, right? It's God's word. Six times he calls down woe on Israel. What does he say in verse five? What does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. The prophet calls down judgment on himself when he's in the presence of the holy God. Look what he says next. I'm lost, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. Unclean lips. A few things to see here. Again, I think it's important to remember Isaiah's job. What's his job? He's a prophet. So what's the best thing he does for God? This is his gift. This is his calling. What's he do? He speaks for God. It's the best thing he does. This is what he's best at. It's what he's called to do. If, he, if he's going to see himself in a certain light, What's he going to look to for? Yeah, I'm a good guy. I follow the Lord. Where's he going to lean on? I speak for God. And this is why he says, woe is me. And then he says, I'm lost. Or another way to translate that is, I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I have nothing. Because he... So easy, so tempted to be like, well, this is what makes me a good person. This is what makes me valuable before God. This is what makes me right with God. Look, I speak for you, God. And then as he's in God's holiness, he sees that the best thing he's ever done for God is totally unclean. And that's why he says, I'm coming apart. Because if he doesn't have this to present before God, what does he have? 
You say it with me. He has nothing. He has nothing. He has nothing. And that's what he's saying as he stands before the holy God. I'm undone because I've just realized I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. Even the best part of me was sinful. Have you seen that about yourself? Do you believe it? Uh, Most of you know me well enough to know that just because I preach a sermon on holiness doesn't mean I'm holy. But some people could still think, oh, the pastor, he's holy. Do you know you can preach with wrong motives? You can. I'm a master of it. I'm a master of it. Um, All sorts of different motives sometimes are prideful, and uh, they don't have God's holiness in them often. Here's what's so amazing. One preacher said, this, this text is showing you that when you see the holiness of God, you have to repent of your repentance. You have to despair of the best part of who you are. You have to give up on every obedience. You have to admit that just because you're more active than other Christians, it's not enough. That just because you're nice and you see yourself that way, it's not nice enough. That's just because you're intellectual or kind or strong or smart or because you went to church every Sunday, it's not enough. The best part of you melts like wax before the holiness of God. And so that when we come before him, what do we have? What do we have? Nothing. We have nothing. And that's what Isaiah sees. I'm coming apart. I don't have anything anymore. Isaiah is the one who famously said later, Isaiah 64, 6, We've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. When you come before a holy God, the only thing that stands is him. It reminds us that the little things are big things before a holy God. What did Isaiah bring out? Words. Do you tend to think of those as the biggest sins in your life? Well, it's just something I said, right? It's just something I posted on Facebook. I know I hurt people and came across as harsh and foolish. I know it's simplistic, but hey, it's just, it's just words. I was tired. That's why I said that. Mm-hmm. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless Word. That's enough to be the end of me, right there. It's enough to be the end of me. I really like what R.C. Sproul says here. Isaiah saw the holiness of God, and for the first time in his life, Isaiah really understood who God was. At the same instant, for this first time, Isaiah really understood who Isaiah was. Well, you might say, my goodness, Christianity is really dark and hopeless. So you're telling me that you meet God and everything about you just rots and that's your story? Well, um, but it's not the end of the story. When God lets you in on the secret that he's holy and that you and all your goodness in comparison is nothing, 
He doesn't leave you there. He doesn't leave you there. So look what he does for Isaiah. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. <laughs> First thing I wanna realize is this coal must be hot because the, the seraphim, they're fiery beings already and what do they need to use? Tongs, okay. Psh, it's steaming towards his face. Uh, pucker up, Isaiah. What a picture. Tim Keller says this here, unless you're wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. Unless you're wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. Until you face the fire of knowing that you're nothing before him, you can't move forward into what you will be in him. And so our self-righteousness has to eat it. It has to get burnt by this coal. Where's the coal from? I think that's what's important here. Tongs from the altar in the temple. What does an altar do in the temple? It's where you bring the, the blood sacrifice, where the innocent lamb dies in your place to show that you deserve to death, but God's not gonna give it to you. It happens at the altar. Here we ask, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I hope we're sensing God's holiness. I hope we're, we're feeling who we are before him. But what's the coal? Look what Isaiah will write later on the same theme. It's a coal from the altar. Look what Isaiah will say about who's coming. In one place he calls him a lamb, Isaiah 53, verse four. Someone's coming, what has he done? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse five. But he was pierced, why? For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the one who always perfectly loved, obeyed his father. Jesus took the woe on the cross. Quoting Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking the curse there. Woe is me. I'm bearing the sins of the people with unclean lips. And in that sacrifice, look what he does for you. Look at Colossians 1.21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's a great resume, isn't it? He has now reconciled. You, you evil people, he is reconciled in, the, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, what? Holy and blameless and above reproach. When you come to a holy God with nothing, you are then given everything. Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your holiness, his perfect life, his death in your place, his resurrection, 
The cross is the coal. The cross is the coal, the burning coal. So when you come to a holy God, not only are you overwhelmed, undone, you're also forgiven. You are forgiven. Well, let's finish here. Look at verse eight. One more thing that happens to you. Isaiah, who's doing all the work here, by the way? What has Isaiah done much? He's, he's confessed. But who revealed God's holiness? God did. And that overwhelmed Isaiah. It confronted Isaiah. And who sent the forgiveness and the atonement? Did Isaiah do anything to get that? He brought nothing. God forgave him. God remade him. God accepted him. And now in verse 8, God says, look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is amazing, this vision. God says, I got work to do. It's going to be hard work, actually, terrible work. But I got work to do. Do you find Isaiah groveling in the corner saying, I'm so filthy and so sinful and so unworthy, I'll just stay over here and hate myself? What does he do? Pick me. Pick me. Send me. Hey, I didn't tell you what you're going to have to do yet. I don't care. You're holy. And you've made me right with you. So now whatever you want, let's go, I'll do it. If you want me to struggle and suffer, Isaiah's gonna have to say, if you want me to preach to people who never, ever believe it, I'll do it. If you want me to struggle through this circumstance or that circumstance or this suffering, you're holy. Whatever you want, I'll do it. I'm yours. Send me. Send me. Do you see what happens when you see that God is holy? You're overwhelmed, you're undone, you're forgiven, and now you're, what do you want to say? You're set free to serve him fearlessly. You are set free to serve him fearlessly because you know what this is all about. It's about an untouchable, unchangeable, beautiful, majestic, holy God. So our question, have you seen the secret? Does your heart echo with this reality that God is holy? Has he overwhelmed you to the point where he's the most massive, the most important thing in life? Has he undone you to the point where you're not relying on anything you can do or have done or might do to make you right with him? It's not enough. Have you come to him with nothing? Have you felt the coal of the cross in your life? Have you turned yourself to it? Have you found your holiness in the perfection of Jesus? Have you repented of that old way and turned to him? If so, are you ready to serve him fearlessly and say, whatever you want, I'm in? Then let's do it. I'm just gonna briefly give you three things I think might help for application. What do we do with this? Number one, I think we should pray for the secret to, to spread. Pray. So think of the Lord's Prayer. How's it start? You remember? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Are we praying that God might become one day holy if he finally figures it out? 
No, he's already holy. When we say, hallowed be your name, what are we saying? Let us all in on the secret. Let us see, let us be moved, let us confess, let us repent, let us volunteer, let us follow you. Let us see and love that you are holy and let the world see it too. Pray it down. Jesus told us to pray this. Let us see. Number two, echo it for others. Do you remember in the, 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 the seraph said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we saw the glory is the echo of God's holiness. Well, look at, look at just this sideline passage right here in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He's talking about breakfast. He's talking about drinking coffee. He's talking about going to work. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? Do it all for the glory of God so that in everything you do, there would be this echo of how holy God is to you. That's the ethical compass right there. Am I seeing and treating God as holy in this moment? You'll know what to do. So echo it for others. Third one, share the news. I love how Peter puts this. Again, we could have gone to hundreds of texts. I'll just finish with this one. Peter here is talking about the suffering that sometimes happens even when you're doing good. The persecution that sometimes comes even when you're doing what is right. In verse 14, 1 Peter 3, Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Why, I wonder, who do you fear? A holy God. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And if you do that, what are you ready for? Always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you're ready to talk about the truth of what you believe about Jesus because he's holy in your heart. And then what great guidance at the end of, that, end of 15. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. Those you talk to should feel your respect towards them. They should... Feel your gentleness. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So holiness will mean good behavior, good works, and ready to share the message with gentleness and respect. Pray for it, echo it, share it. God is holy. Let's pray. God, you are holy, and we are undone. Let us in on the secret, Lord. Change our lives. Let us be more and more amazed by you and who you are. Um, Let us be so grateful and thankful for your grace to us in Christ that you would take sinners like me and make us holy, and let us just joyfully raise our hands and say, we're yours. Send us whatever you want because we know what it's all about. It's about you, your beauty, your glory, and we're ready to live for you. Do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.